to the Tech Done Right podcast published by TableXI. I'm Noel Rappin. Tech Done Right is a new podcast. Each episode will have a panel of interesting people in the tech world talking about the questions or problems that interest them. Today, we're talking about building trust and building teams, and I have two people with me on the panel. First of all, I have Mark Rickmeyer, CEO of TableXI. Say hi, Mark. Hello. And I also have Jesse Sterenshoes, the founder of The Improv Effect. The Improv Effect uses improv courses and workshops to build communication skills, trust, and innovation among teams. Jesse's also the author of the book Control Shift, which is a book of improv games that you can use by yourself to change your mood. Hi, Jesse. Hello. So Mark and Jesse also are the co-moderators of a project called OpsConf, which is an unconference for software consulting companies about the hard business of software and they get together and they talk about their mistakes and uh, they talk about how to build software consultancies better. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. First though, Jess, can you tell us a little bit about Improv Effect and what kinds of things that you do and how you work with the teams that you work with? Sure. So I really work with them around usually three different things, either communication, collaboration, or creative problem solving. And all the things typically fall under professional development. So it might be You know, they want to get better at presentation skills, giving an informal presentation to looking at their product in a different way and help them come up with a strategy and prompts to do that. And I like to use improv and other experiential techniques to get them to feel what it feels like to do that and make it stick. So like, what do you typically get brought in to do for a team? Like, Why is improv an effective, that's two completely separate questions, but why is improv an effective way of teaching that kind of communication for a team? Improv, in my mind, has a lot of benefits way beyond comedy and the stage. And some of the things it's grounded in are around being an active listener. So really staying in the moment and hearing and understanding what the moment requires of you. And There are tons of improv games that can help people do that. There are things like using yes and, which is a way of validating what other people are saying on your team and building ideas together and pushing them forward. So all of these philosophies have lots and lots of exercises that can go with them that teams can try and utilize. And hopefully it starts to like becoming a practice instead of just something they heard in a lecture. It really is amazing, by the way, like the few people I know who have gone through some kind of improv training or coaching, even without knowing that, you can almost tell they've had something like that when you work with them. It's pretty crazy to see the effect improv can have on people's listening skills. Yes. I think I've gone through Jesse's training twice, actually. So so it doesn't always work, but it almost always works. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> okay. I, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. My active listening skills just shut off. Your act- yeah, we can do a third session. If I'm, you want. I'm now yeah. passively listening to you, Mark. La 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 la. <laughs> or active unlistening is that what it's called? Active unlistening, yes. Jesse, do you typically work with teams on like a one-shot basis? Do you work with teams regularly? Like, how does that help to build communication and, and trust? Like, how much effect do you get from one shot? How much effect do you get from continuing to try and do it? So my preference for everything that I do is to work with the team or the company over a long period of time so that I can be there to kind of watch the transition and the journey happen. And even more so, it's about the practice of something. So if I get a call and somebody's like, oh, you know, we have this offsite and our team doesn't really get along well, nobody understands each other, they all would just rather be on their laptops all day. Can you fix that in three hours? I'm like, well... <laughs> Can no, you? I can, <laughs> I can get you started. You know, if, if all you can give me is three hours, you know, here's, 
what you can expect is the outcome. But if you can actually invest the time in making changes, which is typically what they actually need, then I'll create a program for them and go in and work with them and kind of work through the goals that they have to really, like I said, make it become a practice, a habit. See, now I've really only done the three hours version. So that yes. explains yes. why. <laughs> uh, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have seen Jesse turn an entire, like a conference sized room full of people into running around. Not many people can make people run around at a conference. At a, it's true. Yeah. Getting people to do anything <laughs> at a conference other than sit on their laptops is, is pretty impressive. Which conference was that? Uh, Madison. And I think you did Chicago once too, right? Didn't you? Yeah, I do a lot of tech conferences. So some of my first clients were in tech and in the Ruby community. So that's kind of where I like, you know, spread my wings in terms of doing things at conferences. And then it kind of built from there to other programming languages and front end development and <laughs> all sorts of fun stuff. Spreading your wings wide. Yes. Um, but then that comes to like OpsConf, which is sort of a mix of the corporate training and the conference training. Mark, do you guys want, do you want to talk a little bit about what you try to do with OpsConf and how Jesse's facilitation techniques or, or things sort of play into what you're trying to do? Yeah. It's a weird social experiment. We tried, uh, this goes back three years ago. And so as I was running TableXI, I was frequently understanding certain parts of the business and being confused by others and, and wanted to pick the brains of other folks who had done this kind of thing before and thought, wouldn't it be neat to try to bring people together who really understand this space, who are in some ways direct competitors, but could we bring them all together and see if they would be willing to share ideas of how they do things anywhere from uh, sales to recruiting to finance to how they do delivery and operations. So our first step was just renting a really big house in, in South Carolina and getting a spot for people to come together. Uh, and step two was to call Jesse, because I think the challenge you've got is uh, you're purposely trying to bring these people from all over the world who are straight up competitors together, and you're trying to get them to train each other on how to get better at what they do, to trade what they know and give it to their competitors. That's not an easy, uh, an easy thing to sell people on. Uh, and I think uh, improv is a great way to get people to trust each other, to start communicating where there hasn't been that that trust or that communication before. Uh, so as we were thinking about how can we try this this social experiment of getting competitors together to collaborate, to share, Jesse was the, was the first person I called after the realtor, I suppose, to get the house and then to get Jesse and I brainstorming on, is this kind of social experiment, like, would it work? Could we use effective facilitation techniques and could we use improv to bring uh, competitors together to make the industry better as a whole. Yeah, I'm guessing the the realtor didn't really help with that kind of facilitation. Not with facilitation, but the house was lovely, uh, and that did help. Yeah. I think one of the things we found that was actually really effective in that first year is getting people to step outside of their fishbowl and into someone else's actually does wonders to maybe help create a shared experience. And so it was one of the many things that Jess and I thought about to help create that right environment for this kind of discussion and collaboration. Jesse, how do you approach that kind of thing? What, like, you're, you're in a, a situation where you are really trying to build trust really fast. Like, how do you approach that? What kinds of tools do you bring? What do you try to get people to do that helps work in that? I mean, first of all, just connecting on a level where they find the commonalities and also they find the uniqueness among the group and how knowing both of those things and sharing those stories allow them to become more open and eventually to become peer mentors, which is kind of where it's ended up. And laughter, among other things, helps break those barriers. So if you can get people to laugh with each other and even laugh at their vulnerabilities in a way, 
then it's a lot easier to get people to communicate and collaborate faster. Do you remember a specific thing that you had people do like right when they met? Was there a specific kind of icebreaker game that you had people play? Well, one of the things we did is we played a game called Commonality Boggle and we had them pair up into small groups and they had like three minutes to write down as many things as everyone in their group had either experienced, done before, been before, or was true about them. And then they share out towards the other groups. And if they have something written on their sheet of paper that another group has, they have to cross it off and whoever has the most points. So it's it's about quickly connecting and laughing about things, finding out about things about people pretty quickly. And then there's a competitive element, which typically leadership likes to be competitive on some level. And it brings up talking points. So from the very beginning, there's now a facilitated conversation that happened through a game. And then typically what happens after that is we do things on common. So they go through and let's say all of us are in a group together, we have to find something that's unique only to us. And if somebody else has done that experience that then we can't write that down. And so you have this nice debrief about, you know, that commonalities among groups are just as important as differences and uniqueness and diverse mind and all those sorts of things. I think that's one of the challenges that when you bring these people together, the first thing that they're tempted to think about is all the ways that they're different. Competitors think that way. And so it's very important early on for them to realize all the things they have in common, the reasons why they have to collaborate, the things, the values that they share, the people that they know, similar experiences. And so there was uh, another thing we did right when you walked in the door of the house. We had this great big poster board with everyone's faces there. And um, we had different color markers. And we would say, draw a line from you to another person if you are in a similar market, uh, like the Chicago market, or draw a line if you were at the same conference at one point, or draw a line if you, like the Kevin Bacon game, if you know similar people. And so people might come in there feeling like they didn't know anyone. And then by the process of going through that, they recognize all these connections, these people they knew, places they had been at the same time and same place, Uh, I think we're lucky in that way that the software industry is a really small community when you look at it. Uh, And so how many people did you have for that first year? That was another thing we did very specifically. We capped it at 20. Uh, We really wanted people to be able to build that in-person relationship. It's hard to build trust when you're one among 200. But I think if you can really get to know other people, there's a lot of bonding and a lot of experiences you can share over the course of a four-day retreat. I think at the 200 people, you get into some of the games that you played at like Madison was like the rock, paper, scissors was your thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where you play rock, paper, scissors, the loser has to root for the winner actively as the winner seeks another winner. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then everybody kind of like is rooting behind one or the other person at the end. And the thing is, when you're designing these things for these events, you have to keep the audience in mind, like not only who they are, but the size of the audience as well. So When I did that particular one at Madison Ruby, the goal for that from Jen and Jim that created the conference was, can you break down barriers? Because we find that at conferences, people are sitting next to somebody that might be a great fit for their team or a great peer mentor, but they never talk to each other. And so designing games on a larger level so that what you're basically doing is facilitating breaking those walls down. And now they've laughed together and had a good time. And all of a sudden, they're open to conversation that they might not have been before. 
Yeah, I remember a couple things like find somebody who the third letter of their name is the same as the third level of your name or something like that. Yes. And if you can get a room full of, of Ruby developers to actually actively speak <laughs> to the people next to them, even that group, which is somewhat unique. Uh, right. Yeah, it really does. Like it sets a tone where suddenly you're with people who you at least, you know, their name and something about them. And, and it really does, as small as it seems, it really does make a difference in the overall tone and the the, the way that people carry themselves for the rest of the couple of days. Yeah. For me, like I feel like the most important thing about the event is that you leave there having a great connection with one or two people. And if a conference hasn't done that, then I feel like they've let you down in some way because here you are sitting with all these like-minded people that you could learn something from and yet you never started a conversation. And sometimes people need help doing that and it doesn't have to be painful. It can be fun. We tried something different, I think, last year at OpsConf, which was fun as well, because it's a very different size and scale of problem. When you have 20 people versus 200 people, the, the techniques that you use and the, and the approach that you use uh, is different. And so one of the things I thought that we tried last year, which is really fun, was changing the facilitation approach on the first day of the retreat. The first year we did it, we had people would come out and share things they were really proud of, things they thought other organizations could borrow and uh, they could learn from, and everyone kind of bragged about that thing they were really good at. And I don't think I had realized at the time how that could be even off-putting to someone. You come in to a room full of strangers, people who are competitors to you, and you hear about all these amazing things that they're doing. It can make you feel self-conscious. It can make you feel nervous. The second year we did this, Jesse and I totally changed it. And the first day was instead entirely focused on failure. So you had to talk about something you had screwed up, some of the mistake that you had made either in your uh, in your work or in your relationships at work or things that you had tried that did not pan out very well. And because we had looked at the personality type, everyone went through a kind of a Myers-Briggs test before we got together. We could see that there were a large amount of both introverts and extroverts. So we purposely facilitated the group to break into smaller groups rather than having one big room full of people like we did in the first year. And because that first year, uh, everyone kind of knew each other, it was, it was, I think it was successful. But the second year where we had these smaller groups where people would really focus on that thing they screwed up, that thing they tried that totally blew up in their face. It was really, I don't know, people who took themselves down a peg and talked about those things they screwed up. People were much more open to talk about what they tried, what they had failed. There was something just very humanizing about the experience. And it made for really fun discussions that night. Cause if you weren't in that small group, it was a great way to break the ice, you know, rather than saying, Hey, who do you work for and what do you do? You could almost laughingly be like, hey, what did you screw up last year? Uh, it was great. Like Those were some interesting conversations. And so it was fun to see how we could tailor the conversation for a 20-person group to you know have some really deep conversations. And then you can try a totally different facilitation technique for a 200-person group, both with the same goal in mind, to break down those barriers and help people find some elements of commonality. What was cool, too, as Mark mentioned, we had this kind of map and drew the connections for all these different things from all these different perspectives. And by the end of each ops comp, it had gotten filled out even more, which was kind of cool. So you could visually see how there were even more connections towards the end that maybe they didn't realize when they first came in the door. And so that was kind of cool. I think it's interesting. There are certainly things you can do around how you choose to facilitate, how you choose to physically lay out a room, uh, even what kind of a space in town you choose for a retreat, that can have a, a non-zero impact on how people collaborate, how they communicate, and how they build relationships. There was a lot of intentional thought as Jesse and I were trying to figure out how to bring competitors together in a four-day retreat. A lot of discussions around the house, the town, the kind of environment we wanted, all of those things have an impact on how people will form relationships. 
So can you think about like one or two specific decisions that really paid off or, or something that you wound up retooling from the first year to the second year? Yeah. Should we tell them about the beds? <laughs> yeah, it was almost too personal. Uh, yeah. We realized this was a house that said it slept like 26. What we didn't realize was that was uh, two people sharing a bed together in one in one bedroom. So we almost got to be very close with our competitors. Thank goodness we figured it out before they got there that they weren't like sharing blankets. Yeah, we did get a second house. I don't think we're talking about quite no. that kind of facilitated no, no. conversation. Um, but, um, but we did, yeah, <laughs> we did try to choose like a spot that was very scenic, very quiet. You know, we didn't go to Orlando. We went to more northern Florida to be on Amelia Island, someplace a bit more quiet. The first year, rather than being right downtown Charleston, we were out on the coast. And so you had a quiet, more natural environment that would leave room for breaks. Uh, when last year we went to Amelia Island, we were on a resort and we were talking to the hotel about activities and things we could do. And they kept throwing all these really big adventure type things we can do. And we said, what we really want is a campfire on the beach. Uh, because nothing promotes conversation more than people sitting around talking around a campfire. Then and so when you think about sand caught in their shoes. Oh, yeah. Um, now, there was a downside. There was a wedding next to us that had their own personal firework display because who doesn't have fireworks at their wedding? And they were supposed to usher us off the beach before the mortar started exploding and they forgot. Yeah. Uh, so, I yeah. like, did duck and cover like under the beach chair. And then when the coast was clear, I made a run for it. It was kind of crazy. Memorable. Secretly, nothing brings people together like surviving a life-threatening <laughs> catastrophe. True. So I do that's think true. the mortar is exploding over Jesse's head. Yeah, that was it. It did have an impact. That's hard to plan for, though. It is. That's, it is. Yeah. yeah, that's a very precise kind of plan. That's why I'm good at improv. So you know, what do you do in that situation? <laughs> um, so I think there were elements of that where we, you know, we try to pick a different kind of setting, which is great. Yes, Jesse. Do fireworks respond to yes and? Uh, no, uh, they don't. So. I uh, just take it upon myself to run for the hills. <laughs> they also don't respond to people screaming and hiding under chairs. They kept going for quite a while. It was pretty – the photos from that night were pretty remarkable. So if I'm not putting together a 40-person conference but I have like an eight-person team, is it worth trying some of these techniques at the beginning of a project as a kickoff technique? Like is this the sort of thing that you might recommend that you do every week or two as part of your – you know, along with like retrospectives that you – do some sort of trust building? What kind of things do you do when you're dealing with a team more regularly, Jess? First of all, I think to kick off any project that you're working on, it's really key that the group can communicate in a clear way. Because if you're communicating, let's say you're communicating outward towards the customer, or the stakeholder, and inward towards your team, and you're having to pass a message for totally different audiences, but in order for the whole project to work, then you need to work on your communication skills. It doesn't have to be dull and painful. It can be fun. And then I think as you move along, like if you're working in, in an agile way, let's say, and you have retrospectives and things like that, or even stand-up meetings, that you can incorporate these kind of fun techniques into it, A, to kind of shake it up a little bit. I find that some teams, you know, they get so into their way of doing things that they sort of tune out till it's their turn to talk and kind of changing it up by making the stand-up different or the retrospective different helps rejuvenate people and make them pay attention in a different way than they might not have been doing before. Sometimes the failure mode of Agile is the team gets bored because the, the right. everything is sort of so consistent. If it's it, I, very yeah, ironic that a good right yeah 
We actually, one of the things that we do here for retrospectives is we have a project manager who likes to bring in swag associated with what the client does Mm -hmm. for uh, retrospectives, including like exercise, like headbands and exercise uh, wristbands and stuff. Uh, we were doing a project with a hazmat shipping company, and I had to wear a hazmat suit for That's a retro. Right. Uh, so, yeah, not always so cool, but it was interesting. <laughs> it definitely was not our typical retro, for sure. Noel, something else I would consider is if you have a, a team, especially coming together for that first time, not to put ceremony into everything, but there's something special about a team recognizing that they will be a team for a while. Uh, and so having a chance to either go off-site, even just for like a, a lunch or something, to be like, hey, this is what this team is going to look like. There's also that concept of something called a team agreement when everyone gets together for the first time. And one of the things I'll always ask a team is, you know, what's keeping you up at night about this project? What's something you want to get out on the table before we start? Or is there something that you're working on in your career development that you're really trying to improve so we know we can look out for that and we can provide you feedback on this project. I feel asking some kind of personal questions and, again, to find those elements of commonality between people is a really good way to start something when you're doing with like a four to eight person team. Because in those cases, like they all know each other's names. They all know each other's, you know, backgrounds. It's not the same techniques you would use at a conference. Um, But I do think exposing people's reservations or their personal goals. This is what I want to get out of these next few months on this project. That can be very illuminating and a great way to get people to start collaborating as a team, as opposed to a series of individuals assigned to a project. You could even take that a step further. Yes, and Mark. And (laughs) another thing you could do, sometimes, you know, I work with teams and, and typically when it's in software, there are people that are uncomfortable with speaking up and maybe talking about what their fear is or what they're worried about. So one way you can do that is even just do it anonymously. So have everybody write that down on a piece of paper and throw it into a hat and have everybody pick a different one out and read it. Um, And then you can even play a little game on how to deal with the particular worry or fear that they have, but nobody necessarily knows who put it in there. And then everybody's hearing it and they may relate to that, even though maybe they didn't write that down. Maybe that's another thing they didn't even think of that was bothering them. You know, I didn't even know I should be worried about that. I didn't even know, but now thank you for Now I have two things to keep me up. Yeah, yes, now rampant really paranoia worried. is a great way yes. to get people together. Yeah. That's true. Yes, yes. nothing bonds people like shared paranoia. <laughs> Jesse, do you have a lot of experience coming in for teams where that are going to be working remote with some or all of the people off, you know, on different sites? Like, do these techniques apply? Do they especially apply when some people are off site? Like, what kinds of things can I do? Like, I, I don't have to say I, I I can't really bring my whole team together, but I've got two people, you know, scattered across the continent. Is there something I can do to help my team communication? I'm sure you see this. That more and more teams are becoming distributed. And then you have sometimes the awkwardness of like the majority of the team is in the building together. And then there's these two random people that are somewhere else. And so that's already a barrier to communicating and working together effectively. So, I mean, even the exercise we just talked about with um, commonalities, you know, that's something you could literally just put into a chat function, even if you didn't have a way to even see each other, you could do that. You know, there are exercises like to kind of get people's creative juices flowing and problem solving where I call it the two object mashup. So let's say you you and I are on a team and we're not in the same room together. Um, we can still play this game. So what we would do is at the count of three, you would name an object and I would name an object. And then what we would do is mash those two objects together to kind of 
create and explore what kind of product would that be if those two things came together and create our own new product, sort of one idea at a time. And we don't need to be in the same room in order to have that connection and our brains sort of thinking divergently. So, I mean, it sounds like one of the things that's important here is to have a little bit of space for people on a project to sort of associate and communicate with each other where the project goals are not primary so that they have a chance to talk a little bit about their commonalities, their different, you know, that kind of thing to make it easier to communicate. Is that, am I reading too much into that or is that? No, that's, I mean, it's so important. I think the more you are like connected as a team, as a culture, more than likely your project is going to go a lot better because you invested the time in doing that with each other. And and that's such a big part of improv too. You know, we don't know what's going to happen on show night at all, but we know each other so well. If our project is the show, we're going to do so much better if we've spent a lot of time getting to know each other and know our strengths and weaknesses so that we can set each other up for success. If we don't know who you are and we're nervous and we're afraid to be vulnerable and make mistakes, then how can we set each other up for success if ultimately we want the goal of the project working well together depends on the team, you know? It's amazing. A lot of those project kickoffs will focus on like, you know, what's this project about? What does the client need? What does success look like for this code base? As opposed to asking questions like, what are you trying to get out of this? What's the most going to be beneficial for your career? What are you focusing on growing? What are you, what are you worried about? I think it's a lot easier for people to give that feedback once they've said, hey, I'm really trying to get better at, say, JavaScript. And so when you see me doing something, come talk to me about that. Or I'm really trying to uh, work on my consultation skills. So if I'm talking to the client and I say something you think is a bit goofy, that's the kind of stuff I want to hear. People will be much more willing to give feedback when they know that they're open to it. And a lot of project kickoffs will really focus on the deliverable more than the people involved in the project. Uh, and I feel like having a little bit of context into what's going on in someone else's mind makes it that person that much more relatable and that much better of an outcome when you do start working together. Right. I, I think that like more important than any specific methodology is trust. And I think that a lot of methodologies work or almost all methodologies work better if the members of the team and the people of the different stakeholders have a certain level of trust. And I think that the improv show is kind of the same way. Like, even if you don't know exactly what's going to happen, you know that you trust the people that you're there with to do the best that they can and to get to a good outcome no matter what happens. And one of the things then that you're looking to do in a kickoff meeting then is to start working towards that level of trust. And I think really very simple things like those kinds of commonality games, putting people in, in situations very quickly where they can say that they're going to do something and, and show in a very, very short amount of time that they're going to be able to do it. Uh, have some sort of really, really quick win, even if it's just within the context of that kickoff meeting, that kind of thing goes a long way towards building people's trust that they're on a team with people who are in it together. And I would never underestimate the power of failure to be able to build trust. Um, I think people who are given space and you're allowed to fail, it's not harsh. People can make mistakes. So they can learn from them. One of the things that Jesse and I tried when we were trying to build that first day, that failure day, the biggest mistake day, is we went first. Like Jesse and I both went first and talked about the mistakes that we made to show that. And we very personal. I mean, people were very emotional about the mistakes they had made and how it had an impact on their personal and professional lives. And I think creating a space where failure can be recognized, embraced, and learned from is probably the one of the most important things I try to encourage in teams. It has a huge impact on people's willingness to admit when they're stuck, to ask for help. So a leader who's willing to, um, to talk about their own mistakes openly 
only what they've learned from them. Um, like when Jesse got up in front of the whole room and said, here's something I'm struggling with in my business and here's the mistake I'm making and here's what I'm trying to learn from it. Uh, it was very brave to be able to say that in front of a room and it changed the tone of the day that everyone else was willing to say something similar. Failure is a great way to get people to, to start trusting each other a bit more, to openly embrace those kinds of mistakes. And to equalize the dynamic, right? Like, um, I think that's so important too on a team that everybody feels in some ways as an equal. And if Mark and I weren't willing, we're asking them to do something, but we're not willing to do it ourselves, then why should they bother? You know, like that's when people just start to hold their cards to themselves. Yeah, you don't start something like that in a team meeting by asking the most junior person in the room, hey, what's your biggest mistake you made in the last two weeks? <laughs> yeah, hey, yeah. intern. <laughs> yeah. Power dynamics have a huge sucked. impact yeah. on that kind of You'll thing. Do that. Yeah. I think yeah. failure, talking about failure is a great way to take power dynamics out of a situation. Mm -hmm. And that's important. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times, you know, trust and feedback kind of go hand in hand a little bit. You know, that, that a team that doesn't trust each other can't really give each other meaningful feedback to improve. And I think that taking the power dynamics out of feedback and to some extent taking some of the like the personal aspect out of it or mitigating that with the fact that you really do trust the other people on the team, like that is how you can build a team that's going to get better. Yeah. And sometimes what's interesting, so you can do feedback in a more sort of formal sense, if you will, but sometimes games are a good way to get feedback. So either you might get feedback about yourself and become more self-aware and through the game, you figured out like sort of where your strengths and weaknesses were on your own, or because there's a game, you're more able to hear the feedback from other people because there's a, this low risk element in gaming it versus it being like, come to my office at 3.30 sit in this chair and I'm going to tell you about all the things that are bothering me that you do every day. You know, I'm going to feedback <laughs> at you right now. Yes. I'm going to yeah. feedback at your face for the next five minutes. Okay. This is actually something I've had a lot of conversations with different people about over the last couple months. What's a game that you would play to elicit that kind of feedback? Like, do you have a, a, a specific technique that we could actually do a trade secret possibly? A trade, trade secret. <laughs> Yeah. So this is kind of, let's just say for presentation skills, for instance, okay. maybe you're struggling with people not really understanding the information that you present. They're not absorbing it. So I might have you tell a story or give a real world example of something you're working on. And then the rest of the people around you, let's say it's a group of four, they would need to write down the things that they heard and they could even hashtag them. So what are the major points of what they heard and what stuck with them? And then after the person's done speaking, you would then go around and each person would share the things that they took away from what you said. And what you can see is there might be something across the board that everybody heard and there might be different things or there might be things that you thought everybody would be interested in or be clear on and maybe none of them wrote those things down. And so here you are playing a game and you're starting to learn that, oh, well, when sometimes when I communicate, my ideas aren't as clear as I thought, you know? What I kind of like about that is that it's objective. It's focused on what I received and not what you put out there as part mm -hmm. of the story. So I think that it might be a, 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 an easier way for people to come to thinking about what they're doing. Right, right. 
because a lot of people get this feedback from their managers or their bosses that, you know, people don't understand what you're saying or you're confusing the two different parties that you're going in between. And you hear that, that's great and all, but you have no idea what to do with that because now you just have feedback, but you don't have the how-to. And so the game adds that element of practice and the data points, which is that all of these people heard, some of them heard all the same things. So now you know okay, these are the things that I am doing well, because how would they have all heard it if I didn't, right? Or how do they all miss this thing, you know? In my case, people usually just tell me to speak up. <laughs> That's pretty easy to operationalize, and, and, and yet somehow I can't quite do it. You know, one time when I was in high school and I was doing uh, some performing, the way that they gave me feedback was they made me watch myself doing, it was a stand-up routine, they made me watch it fast-forwarding, at, at fast-forward. And oh I had this sort of, I had this sort of unconscious tick of kind of swaying. Uh-huh. And at fast forward, it <laughs> oh, was, no. it was devastating You're to like, watch me like, yeah, like zigzagging, <laughs> like a, like, like a top that was about to fall over. Oh, no. That's amazing. And, yeah. And, and then That's we burned the video tape. So. But though, like it was, it was hard, but there's, the, and you know, I was in a group and in a place where I really trusted the people who were giving it to me, yeah. that they had my best interest at heart and yeah. that they were not doing it in a gotcha kind of yeah. way. Yeah. It was like, we've told you that you're doing this a bunch of times. Here, <laughs> look at this. It's really distracting. Right. Uh, and it's getting in the way of what you are trying to do. And I think that if I, it, it was... I mean, obviously, it's been, you know, like a very, very long time ago, and I remember it crystal clear and made an impression. Yeah. But it was effective only because I really felt like I was in a place where people were coming at it from trying to improve, a place of really trying to improve me, uh, you know, what I was trying to do. And I think that was the important part. The first step is, Noel, you pointed out, you have to have that base level of trust, which is why most of the facilitation techniques Jesse and I have been talking about are really around building trust within teams, building trust within strangers or competitors. Once you have that, um, I was saying there are two other facilitation techniques I've tried to encourage better feedback, assuming that you have a baseline of trust is there. One of them is a game where you put people in the exact opposite role that they're not used to being in. So in our case, a customer will come in and we make them the developers and we become the customer. And we make them build software for us. Uh, and so they learn what it's like to be, uh, so instead of building software in actual Ruby on Rails and software, we call something called the Agile Lego game. They've got to build things out of Lego in five minute iterations as opposed to two week iterations. And we become their customer. So we give them feedback on them being developers and then, you know, they give us feedback on our ability to help them steer the product. It's really interesting to, kind of walk a mile in the other person's shoes and get a sense of what kind of feedback would be most helpful. That is extremely eye-opening uh, and has been very beneficial. I think the second thing we've tried, we did this a lot last year, we would have sessions called communicating the uncomfortable. And so before people get used to giving feedback, we'd give them something really, really outlandish. Like your partner came in to work today and is not wearing pants. How would you tell them that? Uh, and you start going through like really weird, uncomfortable situations. And then uh, you get better and better at communicating these uncomfortable things. And then you start dialing in and making it a little bit more realistic. And it's been interesting to see a room of people laugh and nervously try to have these conversations. And you do a couple role playing Uh, The hardest thing with feedback is getting used to it. A lot of folks want it. Not a lot of folks are experienced at giving it. And then as a result, they're also not really experienced at receiving it. So just the, the sheer muscle memory and having some fun outlandish scenarios to get people 
into that mindset um, has been really, really productive as well. So those are two different kind of games we've played to get teams to start that process a bit more. Um, assuming, again, you have a trust level in place where they want to be able to participate in that kind of feedback session. Yeah, you could also um, just brainstorm like, you know, the top 50 world's worst ways to give feedback. So I, I often like to start with the worst um, and then flip it to the best. For some reason, it's much easier to go there for people to begin with. Um, and then it's easier to flip those things because you can see what the opposite of that would be. That was a fun game. I remember playing that with you. Yeah. I've played that game too. <laughs> Do you play what's the world's worst way to break up with someone? And then half the room was like, man, that happened to me. That's terrible. Uh, <laughs> Why is Mark in the fetal position under the table? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, I had a rough adult, you know, early childhood. Uh, but it's, yeah, I think that kind of thing, uh, it's always easier to start with. I think you're right. That What's the worst way of doing something? And then, all right, how can you make that a little bit better? What else could you have done? Mm -hmm. You also tried something where, like, how would you do that? If, imagine you were now the CEO at Microsoft, how would you have done mm -hmm. that? Like, I think trying to become different people to see how they would have done something yeah. and actually how would they provide feedback yeah so you can do like a list of like personalities or personas you could do a list of like you're going to give feedback but you're on a go-to meeting that nobody can hear each other but every other word you can give like all different kind of prompts and then they can we can put them on post-its pick them off the wall and then get two people to work on the all those scenarios together what i like to do is have that extra person there who then is the observer and then the observer talks about what they observed and actually gives feedback. So it's like meta feedback to the feedback role playing group. And that's important too. I think it's just as important to pinpoint from an observer what you think went well and what you think didn't and not just go, Oh, that was great. And then not have a reason why. And I think the more you can like dissect what it is you saw and why it worked and why it didn't and verbalize that, that's practicing those feedback skills. Cool. Jesse, is there one other thing you want people to say? Is there uh, a resource that you can point people to who want to explore this some more? Uh, you want to push your book? <laughs> yes. Where can people learn more about Improv Effect? Uh, and, and the services that you guys offer? As you mentioned earlier, I have a book called Control Shift 50 Games for 50 Blanking Days Like Today, and it's got 50 different exercises with scenarios that you might be going through. And you can do them by yourself, but you can also do them with a team or an organization. And if you want to find out more about what I do, you can go to www.improveffect.com, and all of the good stuff is there. And then we also have information on OpsConf, right, Mark? Uh, yeah, details on OpsConf are uh, up online. Uh, it's an invite-only conference, so it's a relatively small group of people that uh, we bring together that we think are really in this competitive space that are professional services firms that have a lot in terms of similar size, similar values, uh, and we think would respond well to this kind of uh, sharing um, and collaboration. So that is currently an, in, an invite-only thing that Jesse and I help to facilitate. Uh, the details of it are up at OpsConf.com. And then in terms of, I think, unique practices for team building, I think there are a couple interesting facilitation techniques, but the best advice I can give is to actually look at facilitation as a skill. As people take classes in public speaking, and they sometimes conflate the two, uh, that if I'm a really good speaker, that sometimes I'll be good at facilitating. Uh, and there are definitely different skill sets. And so as, as people are stepping into management roles and thinking about how they can become 
better at in terms of leading people to look at facilitation really as an art form and look at where you can actually get better facilitation skills, not just delegation skills or work management skills or public speaking. I think facilitation is its own gift and improv has a lot of value in that it teaches people to both listen and react incredibly well. Plus, they're a lot of fun. I think there are a lot of good improv classes and studios in Chicago, but it's always great when we get to work with Jesse when she's in town. I would add one more thing. It's great to work with you too, Mark. Um, <laughs> is that if the ops comp idea sounds interesting to you, that you're trying to figure out how to put together a retreat for a group of people and you want to break down barriers and make it intimate and fun and meaningful, you know, Mark and I would be available to talk to about how we design those kinds of events. That's a good point. There's a lot that went into that. And we've learned a lot in the process of doing this for the last several years. Good mistakes, speaking of failures, you know, mistakes we've made along the way, but lots of intentional choices about how to set up and structure something to create that kind of community. Uh, and I think there's uh, a lot to be learned and a lot to be shared from that experience as well. Great. Okay. Uh, thank you. I'm Noel Rappin, and I had with me Mark Rickmeyer and Jesse Sternshoes. The Tech Done Right podcast is brought to you by Table XI, a UX design and software development company in Chicago. 